Good to see you all this morning. I hope you got some coffee, and I'm going to try to give you some time back here so that uh, you'll have the opportunity to do the rest of the, with the rest of the day what you need to do. Now, I want to encourage you to do one thing with the rest of this day, and that is come back tonight to uh, hear Steve Green. Steve grew up on the mission field. I think uh, it was mentioned last night. He just got back from Cuba. We had the privilege of ministering together, although we just sort of missed each other in the airport. Uh, I was going out as he was coming in. Cuba, home of the fastest-growing church planting movement on the globe at the present time. Thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Christ. In fact, the 79,000 members of Bible study in Cuban Baptist churches last year led an additional 79,000 people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty good when you have one for one for every member in your Bible classes. That would be one for one for every member of your K groups here. So this is uh, uh, going to be a great night, and I want to encourage you to be here uh, this evening, whatever else you have to do, even if you have to record the uh, final four, uh, whatever it is that you need to do, be sure that you do it to make your way here to hear uh, Steve, a great friend, but a great friend of missions, and what a wonderful ministry to music. You won't, you won't forget this evening. It will be a blessing to your life. Eric, thank you for the privilege of being here. Once again, I'm very humbled to be here. And everything that I say this morning, I, I told Eric, I got up this morning early, 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 and began um, working, uh, doing a little additional work on this passage of Scripture because I felt like I hadn't really digested it. I'm not sure I ever will as thoroughly as I should have, and I felt like there were probably better illustrations that I could use to um, uh, share with you a picture of what uh, the heart of this passage is all about. And uh, as I was praying through it, I, I said, Lord, I just pray that uh, the bullet will hit the mark and not go astray out there someplace and land in a sand pile out here in the desert someplace. I want to ask you this question. Do you have a heart for missions? And some of y'all immediately say, well, <laughs> I'm here. Uh, well, that's, that's great. But the question is still pertinent. Do you have a heart for missions? Does this church have a heart for missions? Uh, just showing up, even writing a check, uh, going on a trip, uh, does not necessarily mean that you have a heart for missions. And that's a pretty big question because the Lord uh, has made it very clear that He desires for the church to be on mission with Him. We call it the great co-mission. We are co-missioned with Christ. So uh, you would expect that understanding that, that we would have a heart for this mission that we're on. But do you have, personally, do you have a heart for missions? Now, we're going to take a little test this morning. The other day, uh, one of my friends, uh, a mentor of mine, every, every, you ought to have mentors in your life. You know, every man is the product of the books he reads and the friends he keeps. And I would say, as well as the Lord he serves and the music to which he listens, I think those are the four most powerful driving forces in your life. Well, a, a friend of mine and a mentor um, who is 99 years of age ran in a track meet here. In fact, his, his, his picture was on the front page of your newspaper. His name is Orville Rogers, and Orville has been a mentor of mine for years. He flew 25 planes for us, for International Mission Board, overseas. I'm talking about single-engine planes, flying them to Africa and so forth, which you've got to have more guts than a government mule to do something like that. Well, he's a former Braniff pilot, and he flew the B-36 for AWACS back uh, 
years ago during the time of the Cold War. And I love Orville, but he's, he's the running man. In fact, he wrote a book this last year at the age of 98 called The Running Man. And he ran, he set the record, you saw it in your newspaper, for the 60-meter dash. He edged out a 92-year-old man. Um, of course, when you're 99, going to the bathroom is a world record. I, you know, I mean, you, you, I, I laughed about that. Well, Orville, Orville I, let me just cut to the chase here. Uh, Orville called me and said, hey, wish me happy 99th. And I said, well, I do wish you happy 99th. And he said, I got a gift for you. Usually works the other way, but um, he said, I'm, on my birthday, I'm giving you a gift. And I said, well, what's that? He said, I think you need a physical. And I guess it's because he looked at me and felt like my body was not as supple and uh, capable as his. And so uh, I said, I need a physical. He said, yeah. He said, I've arranged it. It's Cooper Clinic, Dallas, Texas. You're to be there January 23rd. Do not fail to show up. So I went to have my physical, all right? And they do everything. I mean, from stem to stern. And I mean that literally. And... Uh, you, you find out things about yourself that you did not want to know. And sometimes it's good. The doctor told me, he says, if you'd have told me there was a 73-year-old man who had no plaque in his arteries, I, would t- I thought plaque was what held you up. I didn't realize that you weren't. And he said, you don't have any. He said, you're in great shape. But they ran this test of my heart. You know, it's really cool. All the stuff they do to your heart. My gracious, to find out whether it's working right, you know, and you can see things on the screen, you can watch it, and there are these four chambers, uh, you know, the oracles and the ventricles and the interventricular septum, and he talks about the three different aspects of the heart, you know, here's the electrical system, and here's, you know, I, I learned more about my heart than I wanted to know, really, only to find out that I've, you know, I've got a good heart. Well, we're going to take a test this morning. We're going to find out whether you really, I know you look nice and you're alert and nobody else in your church is here, but you pat yourself on the back, put a gold star right here, but the question still remains. You're in the, you're in the examination room now this morning. Do you have a heart? Does this church have a heart for missions? Do you really? Perhaps the greatest missionary that we read about in the, uh, in the New Testament anyway, of course, is the Apostle Paul, about whom we read so much, 13 books of, of um, the New Testament, of course. Uh, the Holy Spirit authored those through this incredible guy, the Apostle Paul, saw two-thirds of the Mediterranean world uh, impacted with the gospel in his ministry, in about 10 years, actually, of peripatetic, you know, moving around uh, ministry, some of that time he was in jail, some of that time uh, he was on board ship. But can you imagine that? Two-thirds of the Mediterranean world. If you just take a look at that and think about that, that's an incredible, that's an incredible achievement. Uh, it's effectiveness, like I was uh, talking about like night, last night, not just mere success, because in his day, most people did not think of Paul as successful. But here we are, 2,000 years later, impacted by the life of that one man. So much of what we do is impacted by the Apostle Paul. And so, uh, of course, the thing that, the the one book that we think of so often when we think about Paul is the book of Romans. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1 if you have your Bible with you. And uh, we're going to look at, we're going to listen to the heart of the Apostle Paul first, and then we're going to ask some questions about Ourself. Three times he will say, I am, and in a few moments I'm going to turn that around and ask you to ask of yourself, am I? Paul says, I am, so the question is, am I? Now, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He's, he's explaining 
a little bit to these folks about why they have not heard from him as often as they would like. He said, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, in verse 13 that of chapter 1, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now here's, and I want you to think of this as a lub-dub of your heart, all right? He says, first of all, first lub-dub, I am under obligation, both to Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, let me just stop here to say uh, that he's talking about the entire scope of humanity when he says Greeks and barbarians, wise and the foolish. He's just, he's just thinking about everybody in between as well. So verse 15, for my part, here's the second lub-dub, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he said, just as I'm eager to preach every place else, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. For, here's the third lub-dub here of your heart, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man, or the just as you remember, the righteous man shall live by faith. God, open our hearts to this, your word, in these next very few moments, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what does the Apostle Paul say to us as we just let this fall apart for us? Think of a flower opening up. That's, that's how you ought to look at a passage of Scripture. It opens up a petal at a time. There's the central part, you know, the, the stamen and the pistil and so forth in the middle that's going to allow, allow that flower to reproduce, but then it has these petals which are so important. Well, think of that. We're going to look in this passage of Scripture, and we will let this passage of Scripture open up to us as we think about this whole business of a heart for missions. Paul shows us his heart. He tells, he says, I am this, I am that, and I am this. This is who I am. And I want you to ask yourself that question, am I? Am I? So what, what would be those lub-dubs? What would be those beats of the Apostle Paul's heart? Let's look at that for just a few moments. First of all, he says, I am compelled by the presence of a serious Debt. In other words, something is compelling Paul. Something is moving forward, moving him forward in his life. Something makes it worth being in prison. Something makes it worth being beaten. Something makes it worth suffering a shipwreck. Something makes it worth being starved. Something makes it worth being um, criticized by your peers, the very people that you came to serve. Something makes it worth the Apostle Paul going through all the things that he tells us about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which you don't need to read that right now, but it's, it's the best litany of all that he endured, at least on his first missionary tour. So he says, this is what compels me. This is what is urging me forward, just as something is urging you forward, keeping you here, keeping you in church, keeping you doing what you do, keeping you eating breakfast and going to work and, and ministering. And so something is compelling you. And Paul says, I am compelled by the presence of a serious debt. Notice what he says here. I am under obligation, verse 14, both to Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now notice how he says this debt is is profound. It's, it includes this, the entire scope of humanity. 
the wise, the foolish, the, the Greeks, the, the barbarians. He said, I have an obligation. It is a profound obligation. We, uh, of course, last night I showed you that picture uh, of that little girl that Kevin Carter took in 1994. And, and somebody, said, I, somebody said to me, I can't get that out of my mind all night long. I couldn't, I couldn't get that out of my mind. It was you who were saying that to me. And uh, I said, well, I should have been a little more vivid about that because you can take that picture and you can multiply it. Now, listen to this by 25,000 and then multiply it again by 365 because 25,000 people in this 24-hour period will, children, not just people, 25,000 people or children will die of malnutrition this 24 hours and every 24 hours of the year. Now, that's a, that's a big issue. Now, Paul says... This debt, in fact, he uses a word here. It, I don't want to make you sick, as I said, but if you went to a butcher shop, uh, they'd cut up the meat that you want, and then they would shove what off of the table, what we sometimes call offal. It's, it's just all the, the trash, and it would pile up. And that is the root of the word that is used here. He said, there's this huge, there's this huge, heavy weight. I am under obligation. I'm under this, this weight. It's It's profound. But the thing that I want you to see is that the personal debt, not just a profound debt, he says, I am. Or he doesn't say, I'm trying to lead my church, or I've got friends who feel really strongly about this. He said, I am personally under obligation. Now, so, so ask yourself this question, am I? Does that compel me? Does, does that move me when I get up in the morning? Am I under do I have this sense of obligation to people who are without the gospel? I fired off an email to someone in our demographics department. Pat knows this. That there's a demographics department in IMB that is used by all of the evangelical ministries, most all of the evangelical ministries in, in the, that, are housed, that are based here in the United States because we have so many people out there in the world doing this kind of research. So I fired off an email to a, to a friend of mine. I said, help me once again. I said, I'm, I need some... 1.3 billion people. You saw it. Pat pointed this out. 1.3 billion people alive today will most likely go through their life and die without ever hearing the gospel in such a fashion that they can understand it and then respond to it. That isn't, do you have any sense of obligation to them? I don't mean, do you, do you sit here at the table and say, well, that's too bad. That, that's not personal. The fact that it's too bad, yeah, it is too bad. But, but do you have in your heart, does this church have at its core compelling it, moving it along, driving everything you do. The fact in the back of your mind, every time you sit at a planning meeting, every time you think about anything, ah, I am under obligation to this vast array of people across this world who have no access to the gospel. Somehow, somehow I, I can't handle every one of them. I can't do each, but I can do what I can do. Do you have a sense of obligation? Now, that, that, that's, that's inherent in a missionary's heart. So am I? That's the question you should ask yourself. Paul says, I am. It's very personal to him. 
powerful. It drives him. He gets up in the morning, goes to bed at night, eats, breathes, lives, sleeps with this sense of obligation. About um, um, a little over a century ago, there was a, uh, there was a pastor of a church in South England, I don't know, in the co- coastal city. His name was John Holden. And um, this was down right at the tip of, of, you know, that whole part of the world that we call Britain, or, or not Britain, but, but England. And um, it was located in such a place that when storms would come up, sometimes ships would hit rocks and they would break up. And people in that town were very, uh, they were very accommodated to the fact that when this happened, they were to race down to the shore. They would build these huge bonfire, bonfires, and then they would, uh, they would send out these lifeboats to rescue people from these ships, thinking 100 years ago. Well, one Sunday morning while I was preaching, somebody came to the door, and um, there was a storm, but the storm had come up, and the door almost flew open with the gale of the wind, the force of the wind, and the man says, a ship is broken up, and the people in the church, they didn't sing the doxology or anything like that. They left. They got up, including the pastor, John Holden. They went immediately to the coast. The bonfires are built. They begin to shove these lifeboats out into these waves. I mean, you, you could scarcely see your hand in front of you for the driving rain, and they would go out among the wreckage of this ship, and they would pick up these people who were foundering in the water. They would bring them back. They would bring them over to these bonfires, try to dry them out, give them some food. They would put these lifeboats back in the water, and they would go out and bring back, you know, their, their human cargo. And they kept doing this through, through hour after hour after hour. And this pastor was right among them. I mean, he was right in the, he was on every time they went out, he was out there grabbing people out of the water, bringing them back. And the, the storm began to abate, and it looked like they had everybody ashore. And he raced down, and he said, get another lifeboat, let's go. And, and uh, his mother came to him, and, uh, and she said, John, you are worn out. There's no sense in going out again. And he just took her hands, literally, she pat him on his shoulders. He took her hands and took them off his shoulders and said, I must go. And he jumped in his lifeboat and went out in the fog. Nobody could see anything, but the wind abated, as I said, and the sea just went down to a calm, and you could hear those oars in the water as they splashed out at a distance and disappeared, and this little boat disappeared, and people were pacing back and forth and, and, and wondered what's happened to him. And pretty soon, they heard the splash of the oars, and, and through the fog, someone said, John Holden, is that you? He said, aye, it's me. And they said, is everything okay? Did you find anybody? He said, aye, and tell mother, it's my brother. Do you have any sense at all in your heart that these people whose faces you you have never seen are your brothers and your sisters? They will spend an eternity in either heaven or hell. That's the only option. Is there any sense in your heart a personal obligation that goes beyond writing a check? That's important. Goes beyond going. That is important. Is a compelling force in your life the lostness of humanity as compared to the love of God who says, I've sent my son who's died for them. Can you not go tell them? So if you do, you'll, have, you'll be compelled 
by the presence of a serious debt. I'm under obligation. Well, let's put the stethoscope up again here, the, the second lub-dub here. Notice what he says. For my part, I am, and so you have to ask yourself this question, am I, like Paul, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, you cannot get, you cannot get a, a, away from the fervency that, it, that is mentioned here. There's an interesting word here. We get our word thermos from it. Paul says, it's boiling, where he says, I, as much as you have in your scripture here, for my part, I like the King James, as much as in me is. So he says, this is boiling inside me. So there's the fervency, but look at the focus. I'm eager to do what? I'm eager to preach the gospel. Now, that's the force. Now, yes, to you who are in Rome, but also anyplace else. I, Paul says what's driving me here is I'm eager to preach the gospel, and that's just one word. It means I'm eager to evangelize, really. I'm, I'm eager. This is what I'm, I'm eager to do. That's the force. That's the focus of what I'm to do. So ask yourself this question. Am I consumed with the passion of a sacred desire? That's what Paul is saying. I'm consumed with this. I am eager as much as in me is, so I'm consumed with it. I'm consumed with this passion of a sacred desire. What is it? To evangelize, to preach the gospel, to share the good news of the gospel. I mean, you can do everything else better in heaven that's worth doing than you can ex when you go there, except share the gospel with other people. That's the only reason God would have of leaving a believer here on the face of the earth. Why not just go to heaven? I mean, everything else is better there. You do everything else better there, but you can't do that. So the Lord has left you here. He's left me here to do this, and Paul got it to get the word out. As Carl F.H. Henry said years ago, the gospel is good news, but only to those who hear it in time. So are we going to make sure the gospel gets to these people, gets to them, in time. That's our job. That's, that's what we do. Um, I was thinking about this this morning, and uh, I had, excuse me, I had a good time thinking about this this morning. I, let me just tell you a little bit about myself to help you understand me and, and why I'm so, fer why I'm, I get so energized about this. Um, I grew up at a very interesting moment in the history of the United States. My, my era, my growing up era, and some people say you've never grown up, Tom, you're still a kid, you're a child, I understand. But when I grew up, it was at a turn in the history of the United States when we moved from um, very simple ways of farming uh, to very sophisticated ways of farming. I spent... I live sort of an Aussie and Harriet life. I spent a great deal of time on my grandfather's farm, which was about 11 miles in one direction. My other grandfather was a preacher about 11 miles in the other direction. My dad was a pastor. So I would spend all, all summers on the farm. And then later when I went to college and pastored a little country church, I would come down and stay on the farm, which my granddad thought was great because it just meant he had another hand. That, that, that was good. He, he, he was actively farming at the age of 95. I mean, I've helped him load sweet potato crates at the age when he was at the age of 95. I remember when they took his truck away from him because he ran into a boxcar. He said, I just thought the sky had gotten dark, and he didn't recognize it as a boxcar and ran into it. 
And the next day, after they took his truck away from him, he was out there. Literally, I was, I was on the farm at the time, out there, had hooked a wagon up to a tractor and drove nine miles into town to sell his sweet potatoes. I mean, this, this guy was, was determined. He was like a, you know, he's like a duck on a June bug when it came to doing the work. I mean, he was going to get the work done. Well, he had 11, he, had, he and my grandmother had 11 kids. There wasn't a cull in the bunch. They all loved God. And back in those days, this is the era, which I think is so neat. And I think, by the way, everybody ought to grow up on or around the farm because it teaches you some things are not optional. You don't get up in the morning and say, I don't know whether I want to milk or not. No, you, you, you milk. And we, we live in an era now where everything's optional. Well, maybe I want to believe that or do it or don't. No, not then. Not on a farm. You do it. You get it done or you don't eat. Well, so everybody sort of stayed, lived, even when they got married, they sort of lived around the farm, okay? And when, when it was summertime, which was the time I was assigned to the farm, um, everything took place out in the field or on this huge back porch where there was a table that would seat about 12 to 15 people had benches on either side of it. My granddad sat at one end, my grandmother sat at the other end, and all of the rest of us, brothers and sisters and cousins and everybody who was hand, we would sit on either side of this table. We had a dinner bell, literally, out, on the, outside the porch there was this huge dinner bell because we would be out in the fields working and they would ring the bell. The porch had a well on it. That's where we got the water. There was not running water in the house. The porch had a, a, a well. And we were still, I can remember, the, we were still, we started out, uh, we had seven mules. Mules are vastly superior to horses. And we had seven mules, and I'll explain that if you ask, but we had seven mules that pull these mule-drawn uh, implements of husbandry, um, uh, you know, equipment that we use in, in the process of farming. And then I was, I was in the era that switched over. They began to get rid of the mules, and they, I remember I was there when they got the very first tractor. That was a, a big deal. Some of you all lived at the same, but I got to see all that happen. And, and even though I was born in the 40s, down there in South Central Arkansas, it was like living in the 20s or the 30s, you see. I mean, so, so it, was, it was a really interesting era. Now, here's what would happen. The dinner bell would ring. We would all come in from the field and sit down at the table. We ate the food that my grandmother and my aunts, or my mom, uh, had prepared for us. And after the blessing, everybody would dig in. Everybody didn't necessarily like everything that was out there, but they ate it. I mean, some people preferred fried okra to boiled okra. Me, for instance, I don't like anything you have to swallow twice. I just didn't, didn't, I didn't, I didn't not like that. But nobody complained. Nobody said, oh, boiled okra. I don't, I don't like that. that. Listen, that was not what that dinner table conversation was all about. We had that little moment in time. We knew that an hour and a half from when we first heard that dinner bell, we were going to be back in the field. And so we sat down at the table because if we didn't eat in a hurry, we wouldn't get a nap. And we had to lie down, you know, after that. Everybody had their spot. Now, that's what we would argue about. Where's my spot to lie down and take a nap? And some of you all probably argue about that on Sunday mornings in church. Where's my spot? I'm going to take my nap over here. So, so anyway, what we did at that, at that dinner table, we, we encouraged each other. We got encouragement, number two. We got, we got uh, a little uh, education from my granddad as to this is what I want done this afternoon. And then we got some energy. We ate the food so we could have energy. But the farm was not about that meal. 
That meal was a necessity for that farm to continue existing. The work was out in, are you getting what I'm saying? The work was out in the field. We came here to into that back porch, sat around in that screened-in back porch, had a great time. We got encouragement, we got some edification, and we got some energy, but it was so we could be out there in the field. Don't you see the picture here? That's what we are about. That's what this, it's not, I, I, have, I have been in a lot of churches. Last year I was with, as president of IMB, I was in 55 churches in 52 weeks. I have seen a lot of churches come and go, good, bad, and ugly. And those that have a vibrant life within them are the ones who understand that, it, it, that it's not all about here. See, they're, they're, the churches have been consumed about where do I sit at the table and what was the diet like and did I like this or did I not like that? They are missing it. Or they think that, hey, we need to bring people to our house to get fed. No, no, listen, it is, the harvest is out there. The harvest is not in here. The harvest is out there. The in here becomes necessary so that I can be energized and educated and encouraged out there in the harvest. Have you, am I making sense to you? So the Apostle Paul says, that's me. He said, not only am I compelled by the presence of a, of, a, of a serious debt, I am consumed with this passion of a sacred desire. As much as in me is with everything, I am eager. I am boiling to preach the gospel out there. You got the, got the picture? So ask this question, am I? Am I consumed with a passion of a sacred desire. And that, that is ageless, by the way. 95? Okay. I don't know how many people are here in 95, but, but, but he was still farming. Are you? Are you still in the harvest? Are you at the work? Do you come here, get edification, encouragement, uh, energy? Because out there, there are people without the gospel. Does this make sense to you? Okay. So, loved up. I am consumed with the passion of a sacred desire. The third lub-dub here, all right? And you can ask yourself if you're like this. He says, for I am not ashamed. And this is an interesting word here. It has to do with the, the visage, your face. And he says, I don't, I don't put my eyes down when it comes to talking about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed for the, of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So, so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I am confident in the power of a very simple declaration. I'm very confident in this, the gospel, that Jesus is faithful to redeem those who repent and call upon him out of a heart of belief. I'm confident. I don't have to, I, I don't have to come up with some other plan. I, I very simply love to preach the gospel. That's what he's saying, to, to evangelize, to share the gospel. Not necessarily preaching. Most of Paul's preaching was not standing up in front of people like that. Uh, anyway, he preached through what he wrote. He preached sitting down, talking to people in homes. Sometimes he was in a synagogue or someplace like that. But, but, but he says, here's what I'm confident in. It's the power of the gospel, the incredible power of the gospel. It is amazing. How do you take, I, I was with uh, someone just a, a couple of maybe three weeks ago, 
And we'd stopped by the house of a businessman who'd gone out of business, and he was retired, and so he made his, put his business in the house, and, and we had stopped by there just to talk to them. And in the process of talking with him about, about buying something, his wife walks into the room, and she, she says, you know, something about the fact, well, I got kids involved in Bible study. I don't understand about anything about this. I grew up in a Catholic church. So, so what did I need to do? Did I need to go into a defense of, of uh, evangelical Christianity versus Versus Catholicism, did I need to? No, no, no. All she needed to hear was the gospel. Just let it go. Just let it out. Just share the gospel. That's what does the work. By the way, in a matter of minutes, she was trusting Christ, praying to receive Christ by faith as her Savior. Did it catch? Yeah, I've even gotten a letter from him. Say, I want to thank you to, for stopping by and visiting, and here's what it's done in my life, and here's how blessed I am. I mean, I got the letter in the mail before I came out here. It was not something, I didn't have to, it's just the gospel, folks. It's just, and Paul said, I'm confident if you'll just unleash it, don't keep it inside. It is incredibly powerful. That's, that's, that's what does it. I picked up a, a book one time by uh, Ellie Maxwell, one of my heroes, who was in Prairie Bible Institute for years before he died. And, and then he was followed by a friend of mine who's, who's still alive, and I, I get the opportunity to minister with him from time to time. But that's a great mission-sending school, you know. And um, so he, Ellie Maxwell wrote this book called World Missions, Total War. Actually, that, the original book, I think, was World Missions... Uh, uh, real spiritual warfare or something like that. It was changed to World Missions, colon, total war. I just love the title. I didn't know whether what was in the book. I just want, hey, that's, that's my approach. Yeah, let's go to war for the gospel, okay? And so I got this book, and inside this book, uh, Derek, you'll love this, there, there was a letter from a man who had been called of God to minister, and then God began dealing with him, as he is some of you all, about investing his life in overseas missions. To, to go, as you saw that triangle of there, good, that's a great presentation, and, and to, to go, all right, to, to supersede linguistic and geographical and cultural barriers so that the gospel might be heard by people who otherwise would not have an opportunity to hear. And so in his diary, don't you keep a journal? I've kept a journal since 1964, sort of off and on, you know, but uh, probably about as much off as on, but... Anyway, in, in, that, um, in that book, I copied this down. I should have, shouldn't write like this in my Bible, but I did. Anyway, I copied down what he wrote in his journal because I thought it was so, it was so, uh, it, it really was the heart of what Paul's saying here. He's, uh, he, here's this guy, he's in ministry, but he's thinking about God has another place, okay? He says, my soul is not at rest. There comes a strange and secret whisper in my spirit like a dream of the night that tells me I am on enchanted ground. Why do I live here? The vows of God are on me, and I may not stop to play with shadows or pluck earthly flowers till I my work have done and rendered up an account. The voice of my departed Lord, go, teach all nations. From the eastern world comes on the night breeze and awakens my ear, and I will go. I may no longer doubt to give my friends and house and idle hopes and every tender tie that binds my heart to thee, my country. Why should I regard earth's little store of borrowed sweets? I sure have had enough of bitter in my cup to know that never was it his design who placed me here, that I should live at ease or simply drink at pleasure's fountain. Henceforth then, 
It matters not if storm or sunshine be my lot. Bitter or sweet my cup, I only pray, God, fit me for the work. God, make me holy. God, nerve my spirit for the stern hour of strife. Let me but know that there is an unseen arm that holds me up, an eye that kindly watches over all my path until I my weary pilgrimage have done. Let me but know that I have a friend who waits to welcome me to glory, and I will take joy in treading the dark and death-fraught wilderness. And when I come to stretch me for the last, in unattended agony beneath the cocoa shade or lift my dying eyes from Africa's burning sands, it will be sweet to know that I have toiled for other worlds than this. I know that I shall feel happier than to have died in a softer bed. And when I reach heaven, if one who has so deeply, darkly sinned, if one whom ruin and revolt have held with such fearful grasp, if one for whom Satan has struggled as he has for me, if one should ever reach that shore, oh, how my heart will glow with gratitude and love. And through the ages of eternal years, thus saved, my spirit shall never repent that toil and suffering were once mine below. Here's a man who's, who's um, confident in the power of the gospel, the power of this simple, simple declaration. You see, we make it so complicated. That, that's why I said last night, your job, you, you won't always have the opportunity to share a complete gospel presentation with people, but you can at least leave them with eternity in view. Now, sometimes they may take it like a trout takes the fly. Hey, you got it. And you have the opportunity to share the gospel, but at least put it out there. At least leave them with, with eternity in view. You never know what's going to happen. The gospel in its simplicity is the best thing. Somebody said, well, I'm not really equipped. I don't know all the, you know, different languages and all this stuff. And I don't know how to, you know, parse this and... I don't know how to do that. You know, I know that. No. The gospel. Just the gospel by which you came to know Christ. Just, just the gospel. I was, <laughs> I was in a, a uh, you know, you, you, you get the privilege of doing things that, that I, sometimes I think I, I have lived an enchanted life. <laughs> I can't believe God has been so good to me. And I, I, was, I was sitting with a group of pastors in, uh, in Mombasa, or as it was in Mombasa, Kenya. And uh, uh, I was teaching these guys, and afterwards, this, uh, this pastor, very humble pastor, came to me and said, I didn't know, I, I couldn't believe he was, he was there. I mean, because he was a businessman. I, I said, uh, he said, could I ask you a favor? He said, I'd like to show you my business. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I was dog tired. It was one of those days in Mombasa when they turned the electricity off, you know, from like 1 o'clock. And, and, and my time was from 1 o'clock until 5 o'clock of teaching. And nothing was on except the sun. And, I mean, we were hot. And, and I, he said, I'd like to show you my business. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, I'm thinking this. I don't want to see it. I mean, i just to be honest with you. I did not want to go. But looking at it, I thought, how can I say no to this guy? And so I said, sure. He said, well, I'm going to call a, a cab and we're going to go to my place of business. I was, I was just totally unaware of this, un, un, unprepared for this. 
And so he went out to his business, and you know, he had gotten this business so he could keep pastoring, keep, keep ministering to people. He had left a, a corporate position with Leland, and all he was doing was selling souvenirs. But he said, when my sheep call, I can pull this rag over my, these, these, you know, these things, and I can, go, I can go minister to them. While I was there then, uh, they asked if I would go to a school. And I did. Now, here, here's, here's the rest of the story. Okay, so I went out to school. This is in a predominantly, at that time, uh, the Islamic, Muslim belief was beginning to infiltrate this whole arena. They're, they're ardently trying to take over Kenya right now. And um, so anyway, some years pass, all right? That's in the background. I'm, I finished preaching on Sunday morning, and I did like Preachers do. I'm sure Eric does the same thing. I was standing down at the front sort of schmoozing with people, you know, and talking with folks. And, and uh, folks had guests, and we were meeting and all that. And I looked up the aisle, and down the aisle walks this elegantly dressed man. I thought African-American, I thought, with an stunningly beautiful, I mean, it looked like a step off of a design magazine. Stunningly beautiful wife, three of the best-dressed, best-looking kids you ever saw. And they walked, they came walking down the aisle, and um, uh, they stood there patiently while I was talking to people, you know. And finally, I turned to him, and the moment he opened his mouth, I knew where he was from. I mean, I got the accent just like that. And I said, I know where you're from. He said, do you? I said, yeah. And I, I said, you are from the area around Mombasa, Kenya. He said, well, I sure am. I said, could I tell you something interesting? I said, I was in Kenya, and I, I shouldn't have just butted in, you know, jumped in like that. I said, I'll tell you a story. I said, I was in Kenya uh, one time, and I was ministering with these pastors. This pastor took me out to see his business, and I told him the whole story. And I said, I ended up in this school that was predominantly had Muslim students in it, and, and, I was, and there I was speaking in a chapel, not a chapel, but an assembly, and the thought occurred to me, just share the gospel. And I thought, you know, you say, you can't do that. You can do anything once. I mean, right? All they can do is eat you. That's right. Hey, hey. So anyway, I just shared. I'm telling him this. I said, I just shared the gospel. And then it occurred to me, I can't give an invitation and hum just as I am and ask them to come forward. They could lose their lives. They could lose their families. So I said to them, look, I'm going to be walking around on the school ground, and uh, if you want to trust Jesus as Savior, repent of your sin, just step out, shake me by the hand, look me in the eye, and just say, I'm one. And here's what I'll know you're saying when you say, I'm one. And, and I said, did you know, by actual count, because I kept it, wrote it down in my Bible, 54 different students came to me. They'd step out from behind a column and say, I'm one. He said, I know. I said, how do you know that? He said, because I'm one. I said, you, you know, this doesn't happen except in that song, you know, thank you for, you know, that is this supposed to happen in heaven. It is not supposed to happen on earth. Like, I said, you got to be kidding. He said, yes. He said, I was in that school that day. He said, now, the reason I'm here is that I'm an exchange student. He said, I'm a PhD student at Oklahoma State University, 53 miles up the road. He said, I turn on the television. I said to my wife, see that guy right there? He is the guy that was speaking the morning I repented of my sins and trusted Jesus. Get the kids dressed. You get dressed. We're going to go to Oklahoma City. I want to tell him that I was one then. I am one now. They had driven all the way down to be in that service just to say, thank you for sharing. What? 
some great defense of the gospel, some theological treats. No, thank you for sharing the simple gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I don't blush. I can look you straight in the eye and say, this is what you need. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Interesting word. You've already heard a little bit about it. But in this context, it means it is the drivetrain that connects God with a person who needs, salva- who needs salvation. It is the gospel. So ask yourself, am I not ashamed of the gospel? Am I consumed with this? this power of a sacred desire to, to share it? Am I compelled by the presence of a serious debt? You see, it doesn't take our great physician very long putting the stethoscope over your heart or mind to discover whether I have a heart for missions. Puts it over this church this weekend. Puts it over your heart. Do you have a heart for missions. Father, I pray that the discovery would be that we do. What a unique church this would be. Yes, I know there are churches and people that give and support, but sometimes the vast assembly there that are involved in that don't really know what they're doing or why they're giving. They just feel good because they are. And that's good, that's better than nothing, but Lord, you're looking for a people and for a person who has a heart for missions. Father, I pray that you would show us ourselves this morning. Give us the reality of who we are. Do we have a heart for missions? I pray these things, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.